please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. There's 45 verses this morning, so buckle up. I hope you had your coffee, okay? Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that you know the future and you control all things, and how that is revealed in, in this uh, prophecy. And I just pray that we would be encouraged by your intimate care for us. So we welcome you here. Would you please send your spirit to lead us and guide us in all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to the message that the angel gives from chapter 10. Chapter 10 tells us Daniel had been praying for 21 days, that the angel was sent to give a message to Daniel, but was resisted by the prince of Persia. And so chapter 11 is this message that that the angel gives. And in this chapter, it's a bird's eye view of what takes place in in the Middle East. For us, it's historical, primarily historical. We're able to to look back and see a lot of fulfilled prophecy in this chapter. But for Daniel, it's uh, prophetic. Scholars have found 135 fulfilled prophecies in Daniel chapter 11. That's pretty amazing. 135 fulfilled prophecies. It's over a 375-year period of time and even extends out uh, to the end. And so the title of this message is Precise Prophecy. God shows us his knowledge and control of the future before events even take place. Much of this prophecy has to do with the time period between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. There's 400 years there that we see from Malachi to, to Matthew, and this, these prophecies are con- focused on that period of time in Israel's history. So we got a lot of work ahead of us, so let's get started in verse 1. Also in the first year of King Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So the Babylonians are no longer in power. The Medes and the Persians have overthrown them. We find Darius in his first year, and the angel says that I was sent to confirm him and to strengthen him. So this angel, in some way, is giving help to Darius. In verse 2, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So the prophecy is that there's going to be three more more kings, and then the fourth king will be the richest and, and the strongest, the fourth king of Persia. We know from history this is Xerxes. He's also known as Azarus, and he is in the book of Esther, if you're familiar with the book of Esther. That, that's the king during that uh, period of time. And history tells us that he did attack the Greeks, and he won. But in doing so, he made the Greeks very mad. And the Greeks said, we will take vengeance upon the Medes and the Persians. And ultimately, the the Greeks do defeat the Medes and the Persians. So there's a lesson there. Never make a Greek mad. Okay? But this is all prophesied long before it took place. In verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to, to his will. 
This mighty king that arises is Alexander the Great, and he was one of the most powerful leaders in history, and the Bible describes that he would have great dominion, and he would be mighty, and that's exactly what what took place. God saw his life before it was even in existence and prophesied the reign of Alexander the Great. In verse 4, and when he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion, with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. So after Alexander the Great dies, the prophecy predicts that his kingdom is going to be divided into four groups, four winds of heaven, but not from his own lineage, not from his own posterity. History tells us that's exactly what happened. After Alexander the Great died at age 33, died suddenly, they took uh, the, the kingdom, the, now the new dominating empire of the world, and gave the leadership to four generals. Now, the rest of the text focuses on two kingdoms that came out of these two generals. So if, if you miss this, you might as well take a little bit of a Sunday morning nap. Like, like this is the linchpin of the text. Uh, because for the rest of the text, we're going to see the king of the south and the king uh, of the north. And the king of the south was, was Ptolemy, and the leaders after him were called Ptolemy. And so this title that, that was given is similar to Herod. So Ptolemy is going to be in the south. And then in the north, we find uh, Antiochus. And it'll be Antiochus I. We'll eventually get into Antiochus V. And that's going to lead to Antiochus Epiphany. Why are they called the king of the south and the, uh, and the king of the north? Because... God's prophecy and his message always revolves around the nation of Israel. So who is south of Israel is Egypt. Who is north of Egypt is, is Syria. And so these prophecies have to do with the nation of Israel and Jerusalem uh, specifically. It's important for us, even in events that we see taking place this week, Jerusalem and Israel is always on, on God's heart. And so if you want to understand biblical prophecy, always keep your eye on Jerusalem and on Israel. And we don't know how all of it is going to play out, but we do know from the book of Revelation that there is going to be another temple, and that when Christ returns, he doesn't return to China, he doesn't return to New York City, where does he return? He returns to the Mount of Olives in, in Israel. So, so these prophecies and other prophecies in Scripture, they revolve around the, the nation of Israel. So verse 5, Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes. He shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be great. This is fulfilled in Ptolemy I, who took control of the south. And verse 6, And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her great authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with those who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So the king of the south and the king of the north decide that they're going to have an alliance. How is this alliance going to be formed? Through a marriage. So Ptolemy 
Now, this is Ptolemy II, sends Bernice, his daughter, to marry Antiochus II. We know from history, it goes just as was prophesied, is this alliance didn't last because Antiochus eventually changed his mind. And he says, I don't want to be married to, to uh, Bernice. And he goes back to his first wife. He was, he was married and he left his, his first wife to marry Bernice. And he decides, you know what? Really, the first wife was better. So he sends Bernice packing and Bernice's son. Gets back with the first wife. She's still angry, and history tells us she kills her husband. (laughs) Guys, beware. Beware, you know. Amazing that this is prophesied in Scripture. This is precise prophecy. The Lord knew that this would, would, would take place. And with great detail, as we go through the text, God continues to prophesy how this conflict plays out between the north and the south. Verse 7, but from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Ptolemy III is angry over what happened with his sister and goes and attacks the north. And the prophecy is that he's going to then carry some of their gods, their false gods, with him back to, to the south. Steals their gods. Now that's always a bummer when your god can be stolen. If, you, if your god can be stolen, you know you have the wrong god. Amen? So verse, verse 10, however, his sons shall stir up strife and assembly a multitude of great forces. And, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, then he shall return to his fortress and stir up tr- strife. So Antiochus III mounts a, a counterattack. Now please understand, if you have a conflict between Syria and Egypt... How do they get in between? Israel. Israel's right in between. So, so this conflict in these hundreds of years of fighting is, is affecting Israel as they're going in and, in and out of Israel, mounting these counterattacks. In verse 11, And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy, When he's taken away from the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down ten of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south, also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fail. So it continues to just describe this battle that is going back and forth between the king of the south and the north, the, the Antiochus family and the Ptolemy family. Are you guys doing okay? You, you staying with me? I, I know it's a difficult text. They're going to bring in the ice cream in, in just a moment and, a, and some coffee just to keep you going. So. Verse 15, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound 
and take a fortified city, and, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he, comes, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. So now we see this conflict really beginning to affect Israel, the glorious land. He shall also set his face to enter with strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Antiochus, the fulfillment of this prophecy, Antiochus V, he sends his daughter Cleopatra, now not the famous Cleopatra, to marry Ptolemy uh, the, uh, the V. And Ptolemy the V is not quite old enough to be married, so she, she went down to the south waiting for him to be old enough. But eventually, she does fall in love with, with Ptolemy. She is married to Ptolemy, and she, her allegiance goes to, to her husband. And at the end of verse 17, it says, And he shall give him the daughter of woman to destroy it. He gave his daughter with the intention to be a spy in the kingdom of Ptolemy, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. So again, an amazing prophecy that God predicts long before it took place. In verse 18, And this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So once Antiochus' plan doesn't work with his daughter, Cleopatra, he turns his attention towards the, the coastlands of Egypt. But we find in verse 18, a ruler shall come against him. And who came against him was the emerging Roman uh, Empire. In verse 19 then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So puts his attention back on his own, own land, but stumbles and falls and, and dies. Verse 20, Then shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. There's always one of those, isn't there? There's always one that arises to impose taxes. Somebody's got to pay for all these wars. Somebody's got to pay for all the, these battles. And history tells us that Syria is really struggling at this point financially. So, so the new leaders like, we've we got to have more taxes. But a few days he shall be destroyed. History tells us this man was Seleucus Philopater. That's quite a name. Could you imagine if your last name was Philopater? I don't know. And so... He comes into power, imposes taxes, but then he was poisoned. He, 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 he was killed. I guess taxes have never been popular, huh? Verse 21. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken and also the prince of the covenant. A vile person arises, and this is Antiochus Epiphanes in 175 BC. And he's going to do great uh, destruction to the Jews and specifically the temple. We've talked about him a little bit prior in our study of Daniel. And this is the most detailed prophecy of Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes in the book of Daniel. In verse 23 
And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So his mode of operation was one of, first, I'm going to befriend you. First, I'm going to give you a treaty. But then once you trusted him, then he would overpower you with a small number uh, of people. In verse 24, he shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the providence, and he shall do what his fathers have not done nor his forefathers, he shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, and the riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So this is pretty deceptive, isn't it? So, so he comes into the richest providences, and he says, you know what, I just care about you guys, you know? And I want to share some of the spoil with you, and I want to I spread all the, the, the wealth around, but it's only for a time. Once they trust him, then he's going to destroy them. In verse 25, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the kingdom of the south with a great army. So Antiochus Epiphanes, at first, his focus is upon still the kingdom of the south. And that's going to shift, but he, he's headed to the south. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portions of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So Ptolemy has a strong army in the south, and he's ready to meet Antiochus Epiphanes, but he has men that are a part of his own cabinet that shared of his, his delicacies. They, they shared In-N-Out Burger together. Yeah. And yet, do you guys hear In-N-Out's coming? Yeah. I had to work that into the message somehow. Right? <laughs> so these guys are good friends, and his, his good friends turn, turn against him, and that ultimately results in, in a victory for Antiochus Epiphanes. In verse 27, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. So, so Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy, both bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper for the end will still be at the appointed time. Isn't it amazing? Thousands of years later, there's still so much similarity of what's happening in this region today. I mean, Syria is, is a mess. There's so much conflict in, in Syria. There's so much violence now in, in, in Egypt. These guys here are going to sit down at a table for a peace treaty, but they're both speaking lies. How many times in the Middle East is there some kind of peace treaty, but nobody really intended peace? They, they were just going to speak lies at, at the table. And please understand how close Egypt and Syria are to the nation of Israel. We're blessed with so much land here in the United States. I mean, we can drive and drive and drive and take a road trip. I mean, Israel has a very small piece of land, and then Syria is right there on their border. When you're on the Golan Heights, you can see into Damascus. So you can guarantee that the conflict that's happening in Syria will affect Israel. It's just a matter of time. It might be five years or 10 years or 15 years, but whoever really comes in power in Syria in this next season, it's going to affect Israel, and it always has. When you read the Old Testament, there's always the kings of Syria that are in conflict with, with, with Israel. And then on their southern border, you have, have Egypt. And so it's very compact. It's right there. And Israel's really surrounded, even to this day, by still turmoil that happens in the north and the south. In verse 28, 
While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So in the process of this conflict with the south, Antiochus's heart is going to turn against the Holy Covenant or the, the nation of Israel. And at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. So again, he's going to go after the south, but this time it's going to be different. For the ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. The ships of Cyprus were Roman ships, and the Roman ships come in and stand against Antiochus Epiphanes and prevent him from going down to, to the south. Now, history tells us that they confronted Antiochus Epiphany in a, in a very powerful way. So verse 31, here's the focus upon Israel. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, which is the temple, and they shall take away daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. And this is what is spoken of already prior in, in the book of, of Daniel. And this horrific event is prophesied. God knew that this would take place. Antiochus Epiphanes is so angry about his loss that he comes into Jerusalem and upon arrival, he kills 40,000 Jews in, in, in one day. Before he's done, he's killed 100,000 Jews. Takes control of the temple, takes a pig, kills the pig, and puts blood upon the altar. Erects a, a statue to Zeus and demands worship of Zeus. Makes the Jewish priests drink, drink the blood. Pigs, obviously, are unkosher, and th this is the abomination of desolation. This is desolating God's holy of holies. And God knew that this would, would take place. And what we find in Antiochus Epiphanes is that he also foreshadows the Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist, but points to the Antichrist because in the book of Revelation, we find that the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and he's going to desecrate the new temple that, that has uh, been, been built. So in verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Don't you love that? In the midst of this dark and evil day of Antiochus Epiphanes, God also prophesies that there's going to be people that know the Lord. And throughout history, there's always been a remnant of people that have known the Lord. No matter how dark the day, no matter how there's evil rulers and evil happening in society, and the fulfillment of this is Judah Maccabee. And he forms a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, and God provides a great, great victory. And the celebration out of that is the festival of lights for the nation of Israel, Hanukkah. And so the Lord raised up someone to do great exploits in the midst of that. And we want to be those people, amen? You know, we don't want to be terrified by the darkness, overwhelmed, but say, I want to really know God. And if we really know the Lord, then based on who he is, we can stand in courage. We, we can stand up and say, you know what? I, I'm not going to stand for this. And it's encouraging to look at different points that are very dark in, in history and see God moving through believers that were willing to trust him and take great, great stands uh, for, for the Lord. In verse 33, 
And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So all of a sudden in this prophecy, we're, we're working through this period of time between the book of Malachi and Matthew, and then the prophecy says also this points to the time of the end. And it is still for that uh, appointed time. So there seems to be a near and a far fulfillment of of this prophecy. The near fulfillment is Antiochus Epiphanes. The far fulfillment is the Antichrist. And these next set of verses uh, seem to speak of Antiochus, but also of the Antichrist. What we know of the Antichrist in the New Testament and from the book of Revelation really fits from what we're going to read from verse 36 uh, to verse 39. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. That's the leadership style of Antiochus Epiphanes, but that's also the Antichrist. The Antichrist exalts himself above all. You know, Antichrist is not simply just against Christ, but it's also in replace of Christ. And we know that the spirit of the Antichrist, the the idea, the philosophy of the Antichrist is alive and well today. And that's what? To not only be opposed to Christ, but the ultimate opposing to Christ is to replace Christ with the worship of ourselves. Do we see that today? Absolutely. Do we see people that say, you know what, my God is me. I'm not, I'm not really into, you know, Buddha or Muhammad or, you know, Eastern mysticism, though, though that exists. I'm just into myself, and I'm going to exalt myself above every god. Now, we don't want the traits of the Antichrist in our lives. Amen? Like we we want to go in the opposite direction of being submitted to Christ. In verse 37... He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. So there will be a a God that the Antichrist honors, a God which his fathers didn't know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Then he shall act against the strongest fortress with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. In verse 40 down to verse 44, And at that time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Because prior in the text that it said this speaks of the time of the end, there's some Bible teachers and Bible commentaries that look at verse 40 and think that this is a prophecy of of the Antichrist. Now, obviously, with future prophecy, we have to hold positions with great humility, don't we? Even though Daniel's given this message from the angel, there's got to be a lot of this that he didn't understand, 
You know, how's this really going to work out with, with a daughter being sent down to the, to, to the king of the south? But as we look back on it, it's fulfilled prophecy through the lens of history. We go, oh, that's clearly the, the, the fulfillment. So if verse 40 is a yet future prophecy, then it's the king of the south, which according to the text is Egypt, and the king of the north, which is, is Syria, will attack the, the Antichrist. In verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. So these are the ones that escape from the Antichrist's hand. Edom, Moab, and prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So Egypt doesn't escape. He shall have power over the treasuries of gold and silver, over the precious things of Egypt. Also, Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. So taking Egypt, but then also Libya and over to Ethiopia. Spreads out into, further into Africa. In verse 44, but news comes from the east and the north shall trouble him. So he hears of troubling news from the east and from the north. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious mountain, right, right in Israel. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. And if indeed this does point to the Antichrist, then the defeat would come through Jesus Christ in his second coming. Wow, we did it. Woo! We got through the 44 verses. So what does this have to do with our lives? What do we understand? What can we clearly understand from this text? So I'm not, I'm not quite ready to end the service, even though I went through the chapter. I, I know you guys are like, wow, he's done. I'm getting out of here early. Nope, you're not getting out of here early. I got one personal application for us. So, so God knows and controls the future. So, so he knows and controls the future. And I think a lot of us would go, yeah, that's true on the international stage. That, that's true when it concerns Israel and, and prophecy. But is God really concerned with, with my life? Does he know my future? And does he control my future? So turn with me to Psalms 139. And I want to end with reading through Psalms 139 to see God's personal care for you. That God is concerned with your future, that he knows your future, that he's in control of your future. So Psalms 139. O Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. God knows you're, you're rising up and you're sitting down. He t- takes notice of when you stand and when you sit. He knew where you would sit this morning. You're saying, that's not difficult. I sit in the same seat every week, right? <laughs> he knows your thought from afar off. He, he knows what you think even before those thoughts come into our hearts and our minds. Verse three, you comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue but behold, you know it all together. So before that word is even on my tongue, you know it all together. I think our flesh and the enemy always is causing us to doubt, does God really care about my life? You know? God's too busy to be concerned with, with my life. I'm sure getting my car fixed 
this afternoon or Monday morning isn't a concern to God. He, he's too busy. He's got to sort out all these things on an international uh, scale. You know, God, God's not concerned with the brokenness in relationship that, that I'm going through. But as we read this text, we go, wow, God really is concerned with my life. And he's acquainted with my ways. In verse 5, you've hedged me behind and before and your hand and laid your hand upon me. What a beautiful promise. God has protected us and he's placed his hand upon us. You ever have a time of reflection and you go, wow, God's hand has been upon my life. Even before I knew Christ as my Savior, his hand has, has been upon my life. In verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high and I cannot attain it. David, who writes this song, he's saying, this, this is too wonderful that God would, would think about me and have his hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take on the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light upon me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. David's saying, you are acquainted with me from birth. You put me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We think about God as the creator. There's no one like you. There's no one like me. You're specifically you with your looks, your personality, your identity, who God has hardwired you to be. So if God has created you, why wouldn't he be concerned with your future? Why wouldn't he be involved uh, with your future? And this is an amazing promise in verse 15 and 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. So God, in his infinite wisdom and knowing all things before we were even formed, he saw our substance. He's like, I see Eric. I, I know what Eric's future is going to be at 40. I know what his future is going to be at 65 or 80 if the Lord allowed me to be that old. He, he, he sees our substance. Isn't that amazing? So, so we see God's knowledge in this amazing, precise prophecy, but we also see it in a very personal way. In verse 16, And in your book they were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So God writes it down in a book, our days, before we even came into existence. He knows. He knows how long we're going to live. He, he knows if we're going to live a long life or, or a short life. It's known to him. And this is the response of David. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more than the sand when I awake. I am still with you. He's just blown away that, that God would think of him so much. God's thoughts are of peace and of hope to, get, to give him a, a future. He says, your thoughts towards me are innumerable. The sands of the sea, you can't count the, the sounds, sands of the sea. We get a very powerful picture here of a loving father who can't stop thinking about us. You know? I mean, even as a parent, think about how much you think about your kids, no matter what age they are. 
You really spend your days thinking about them and praying about them. How, how are they doing? And, and, and God, how much more so? Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they shall speak it for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Seems really random, doesn't it? It's like the song just took a weird twist. Here we are talking about God's loving care and how he's acquainted with our ways and he knows us even before we were put together in our mother's womb. And then, and then here's David like, I hate those that hate you. This is David responding to the knowledge that God is concerned with his life. He feels safe to now share his concerns with God. It's like, God, you're thinking about me. You love me. You, you know all things. Well, these guys over here have really been bugging me. You know, they, they hate you. And, and I'm, I'm going to oppose them because they oppose you. And that's an appropriate response to the knowledge of God. To take what concerns you today and to be able to give it to the Lord. But there's one more turn in this song. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Have you ever been getting upset about somebody else's wickedness and then all of a sudden that's convicting because you're like, oh, I'm pretty wicked myself, right? This seems to be what David's going through. He's like really mad at these people that are opposing God, but then he's like, wait a second. God, would you search me? Would you know me? And would you know my anxieties and my wickedness and would you reveal that to me? So I think this morning our response to God knowing the future and controlling all things is not this distant God, but this very personal God that's acquainted with our ways, who's also a gentleman, and saying, I am inviting you to reveal to me what you already know about me. Because if God is this acquainted with my ways, then he sees things about myself that I don't see, things that I haven't been willing to acknowledge. And that's the personal application of the knowledge of God. So we may not have grasped all of the detail of Daniel 11, but we can see that God knows and controls all things, and that's the God we serve. And this morning, may we find rest that the future is in his hands. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you show us your glory in this prophecy, that nothing is a surprise to you, that you know all things, that you rule over the authorities of men, over nations and countries, and it's all working to your second coming, Jesus. But we also thank you that you're aware of what's going on in our lives, and we take comfort that our future is in your, your hands, and we get overwhelmed by the uncertainty of our future, but it's known by you. So we invite you to search us. We invite you to reveal to us the wickedness and the anxiety so that we can surrender that to you and be closer to you. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.